Now, it is not often that I can outsmart, you know, somebody who has a medical degree, and I don't think I'm going to be able to do it here. But we'll do a little challenge off the beginning. Let that play for a second, Eddie. Now, can our guest hear that through the phone? Dr. Alan Sills joins us. Okay, now, Dr. Sills, you are the chief medical officer for the National Football League, which automatically means that your intellect is like six times the capability of a guy doing a dog and pony show in Indianapolis about sports. But can you tell me the reason why we played that intro music as you joined the program today? Wow. Well, I thought you were going to ask me the Commodores, you know, as the artist and maybe kind of what era, but I cannot tell you why that is associated with your show. No, associated um, with you. I on that one, Jake. I played it for you. Oh, associated with me. Oh, okay. Uh, you're going to stump me on that. I, I've been called a lot of things, Jake, but probably Brickhouse is not one of them. So well, but I, you've been I, called a Commodore, haven't you? I have. I have. There you go. Okay. I, I got the connection now. <laughs> you are a product, if I'm not mistaken, of the Vanderbilt University Medical Center, correct? Or at least you had worked there at one time, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually still on the faculty there. So I'm a professor of nurse surgery at Vanderbilt and founded their sports concussion center. So that is true. I've been at Vanderbilt for about uh, 14, 15 years now. One of my best friends in the world um, who went on to become an oncologist is a graduate of Vanderbilt. So uh, hats off to that fine university. Dr. Sills, I appreciate your time. I want to begin with this. Um, you know, we all hear, as sports fans, we all hear of players going into the concussion protocol. And it is not my obviously, and I want to make sure that people understand this before I even have you go into this question, doctor. Um, I would not put you in a position to speak to specific cases because number one, based on HIPAA, I don't think you can. And number two, it would be unfair to assume that you know each individual case. So people thinking that you're going to divulge info about Anthony Richardson, that's not the point of this interview, but rather to simply illuminate what a player goes through when they go into the protocol. So can you explain exactly what the protocol itself is? Yeah, absolutely. And you're, you're correct. I won't speak about specific players, but just in general. So think of the protocol as a recipe or a guidebook. It tells us how we're going to evaluate and treat a player who may have a concussion. And obviously in the NFL, we want to have that same standard, that same evaluation, that same management apply to all players in all situations. So I think the first point I would make to you is the protocol Entering the protocol as a term does not mean that someone has been diagnosed with a concussion. When we say that we're initiating the protocol, what that means is someone has been identified, a player who might have a concussion. And so now we're going to evaluate them in a systematic way. We do the same exam on every single player, the same way, the same uh, questions, the same exam every single time. And then if they're diagnosed with a concussion, then the protocol specifies what are the next steps that they go through, what happens immediately to them, what happens the following day, and then what are the steps that they need to do to return to play. So the protocol doesn't mean you've been diagnosed. It just means you're entering into that evaluation. Then if you're diagnosed, the protocol specifies the steps that you need to get um, to return safely to play. And one of the things that I think your, your listeners might find interesting is the variety of people who can initiate the protocol or trigger it. Um, it can certainly be one of the team doctors or athletic trainers. It can be one of our independent doctors at the game. We have, as you know, a neurospecialist on each sideline. We've got a neurospecialist up in the booth upstairs looking at the field. We also have two spotters upstairs looking for injuries on the field. But also a coach, 
a teammate, even a game official, any of them can come to the medical staff and say, you know what, I think this player needs to be evaluated. And that identification is enough to initiate the protocol. So we've, we purposely have allowed a lot of people to initiate the protocol because we want to have, as we say, a very wide net, make sure we don't miss anyone. Are the steps of the protocol or the, the avenues that you take throughout that examination in any way, shape, or form influenced by which of those variables you're talking about that first tipped it off. In other words, if the player himself comes and says, yeah. you know, hey, so you get what I'm asking, right? Is there a, is there a tougher stringent yeah, in any way, shape, no. or form? No, it's the same exact exam. And we basically have a two-tiered exam system. So we have what we call a sideline assessment, which is a quicker screen. It, it, it looks for, uh, you know, a few objective signs. It asks certain questions of the player, and it reviews um, details of the injury. But even that sideline assessment includes a mandatory review of the injury video. So the team physician and this independent neurospecialist, they go over together, look at the video, look at the mechanism of injury. Then they confer together to discuss what they found, what they heard in the exam, what they saw in the video, and reach a consensus diagnosis. So I think another important thing that people need to know is this is never one person that makes the diagnosis. It's a, it's a team effort among these medical professionals to make that diagnosis. But again, those steps on that sideline evaluation, they're the exact same no matter who triggered it. Then in the sideline examination, if anything is abnormal or unclear, the athlete can go to the locker room for a more extensive exam. We call that our locker room examination. So two different examinations um, depending on that initial screening result. Dr. Alan Sills joins us, Chief Medical Officer for the National Football League. Doctor, the baseline exam that happens uh, before the season starts, what goes into that exam and the process of making sure there's a an accurate and, and clean baseline for players? Because correct me if I'm wrong, that is the goal to get out of the protocol is to meet where you were for those baseline initial readings, correct? What goes into that test? Yeah, it's part of the, the, the finishing of the protocol, but let's talk first about the baseline. So, so there are a couple of components. Um, the players undergo what's called a, a SCAT exam, S-C-A-T, which stands for the um, Sport Concuss- Concussion Assessment Tool. So it's a standardized battery of tests that um, are used around the world. It's been validated as a, as a good um, screening mechanism and tool for concussion, uh, the types of, of, of issues that are affected by concussion. And so the athlete will take that and have that documented at baseline in the uninjured state. And as you said, the goal is if they get injured, you can compare their scores back to that exam. But you also have a neuropsychological battery of testing. And those are more extensive tests looking at memory, at processing speed. Um, um, it's usually done in a combination of some of it that is Uh, paper and pencil testing, and then some that's done by a computerized process. So that's another form of the baseline exam, and players tend to get that at least every other year. And so in both cases, after they're injured, you go back and repeat those same two tests, and you compare them to the baseline scores as part of that process to decide if they're recovered. Now, you have to remember along with that, you're going to progressively exert the athlete, You're also going to be monitoring for any new symptoms. And all of that goes into the mix of decision-making about when they're ready to return. Doctor, my apologies if you you kind of went over this in that initial answer about the protocol itself, but I want to make clear on this. So if a player were to say, hey, listen, I'm a little bit dazed after that last play, or if a player's indication or, or flag waving is what forces the evaluation there on the sideline, is it possible that they 
are in fact not, to, you know, that they are determined that they don't need to go into the protocol, or does that automatically put them into the protocol? No, in fact, it does not. And, and it's a really good point. I would say we do three to four negative concussion evaluations for every one that we diagnose. Okay. Meaning most of our concussion exams are going to be negative. And that is a, that is a number that we and the Players Association advisors are very comfortable with. Again, back to my statement, we want to have a really broad net so that we don't miss anyone who might be injured. And so just because someone raises their hand and says, hey, I think I might be injured, that doesn't affect the outcome of that exam. We're still going to do the best uh, exam we can. Now, obviously, if they endorse certain symptoms, um, then they're more likely to be diagnosed. And, and in fact, we have a few symptoms which are called no-go criteria. If you have one of those, then you're automatically diagnosed with a concussion. But those are things like a loss of consciousness, confusion or amnesia, you can't remember anything, or the fencing posture where you see someone with a very abnormal posture of their arms or legs. So those are an immediate concussion diagnosis. If you don't have one of those, then just the fact that you say, I have this symptom or that, you know, you're still going to get that evaluation. And I think one other thing your listeners would really be interested in and probably surprised by, up to about a third of our concussion evaluations have some component of self-report meaning the player themselves or, or their teammates are the ones who actually initiate the evaluation. That's a statistic we track every year. And, and I just think that's something that we're really proud of because it, it shows that players understand, hey, this could be a serious injury. If I don't feel well, I need to speak up. I need to get evaluated. And we just applaud players for that. And, and I will say this about Anthony Richardson's situation. Again, we should give him tremendous credit for speaking up and endorsing symptoms um, because that's what we want to encourage players really at all levels of sport to do is that this is not an injury you can play through. If you think you don't feel right and you, you may have a concussion, it's so important to immediately speak up and, and get the proper attention. And so I, I do want to call out and just applaud him for that and, and just say that that's not unusual. We see that, as I mentioned, in up to about a third of our evaluations. Dr. Alan Sills is our guest. He's the chief medical officer for the National Football League and, of course, talking about the concussion protocol. Doctor, uh, I'm curious of this as well, even for you know non-athletes, right, for the, for the – the average person who's working in their yard and slips and falls, whatever it might be, when one is being evaluated for concussion-like symptoms, are there times where a concussion is determined based subjectively, or is there always some sort of a physical evidence you're looking for that is the determining factor that a concussion has taken place? No, you've hit the nail on the head in something really important. The overwhelming majority of times, it is the subjective or self-reported endorsed symptoms that make the diagnosis. It's very rare, in contrast, to have objective symptoms where, let's say, one pupil is not working correctly or you notice muscle weakness or <clears throat> excuse me, something of that nature. So, so this is an injury that's very, very reliant in the diagnosis and management on the patient's self-reported symptoms. And that's why uh, we emphasize so much how important it is to report those symptoms and to be fully honest and transparent about them because that is our best guide. And, and we really struggle to make a diagnosis, you know, outside of those obvious no-go criteria that I mentioned a few minutes ago, we struggle to make a diagnosis if we don't have a really cooperative and compliant patient. And so that's a, that's a key element of making a good diagnosis and, and also helping someone return safely to play after concussion. It, it does feel like, doctor, that this is maybe not as common as it would have been, say, 10 or 15 years ago. The, the gruff machismo, right, of the like, I'll play through anything. Give me a smelling salt and I'm going back out there. I got to keep my job, that kind of – you know, that mentality certainly was prevalent in all sports at one time. I think there's more awareness now. 
But do you have to guard against that? I mean, do you are there? You don't have to say what they are, but are there certain things that you guys are looking for that indicate that a player is trying to bluff his way through it? Well, I think you're right that there's been a sea change in how players and, and others perceive this um, over the last uh, uh, number of years, certainly over the last decade. I mean, I've been doing sports medicine for over 25 years, and I've certainly seen that on sidelines. And so players and, and coaches and everyone are much more likely to report nowadays than they were 15 or 20 years ago, and that's a good thing. But I think we can never take that for granted. We have to continue with the education and continue to emphasize for each new generation of players why this is so important and why they need to speak up. I do think, you know, I often say that today's NFL players have sort of grown up with a concussion protocol, meaning that, you know, they had one in high school, they had one in college. And so it's a familiar thing to them. And But it's something we can never take for granted. We have to continue to educate and emphasize how important it is. But I do think that the culture has dramatically changed. And, and as I mentioned a minute ago, we have a couple of episodes every year where a head coach will bring a player over to the medical staff and say, you know, I think this person is injured and I really want you to check him out. I can't conceive of that happening 20 years ago, but that's just part of our game today. And I think it's a very, very positive development. and shows how much progress has been made on the education and awareness of this injury. Dr. Sills, the five-step process, symptom-limited activity, aerobic exercise, football-specific exercise, club-based non-contact training drills, and then full football activity slash clearance. I know it's a case-by-case basis, but as those are formulated, which one is generally the toughest to get out or not get out of, but graduate to in that five-step process? I wouldn't say there's one more than the other. I mean, I think the key is just, again, very careful symptom monitoring as someone enters that protocol. And and obviously the last step of that is full contact. And so um, that doesn't mean putting someone in a game, but it means simulating contact for them or putting them in a full contact practice. And so it's just key that every one of those steps is done and that there's careful monitoring along the way. Um, I think we mentioned earlier that in addition to those five steps, players have to go back and take those baseline evaluations again, the SCAD exam and the neuropsychological examination. And they're also seen by what we call an INC, an independent neuroconsultant. That's a neuroexpert in concussion who doesn't work with or for the team, who sees the player independently and, and makes sure that they agree they fully recovered. And then the team physician also has to make that determination. So, there are a lot of steps and a lot of layers to that return to play pro, uh, program. And, and it's designed that way on purpose because, again, we want to make really, really sure that we don't have an athlete who might still be injured returning to play too soon. Doctor, my last question for this, and I appreciate your time on what I know is a busy time from you. Um, my last question regarding the concussion protocol is kind of twofold. And one sounds flippant. I'm being half serious with it. During training camp, I noticed that players wear on their helmets kind of like that extra external padding. The Colts, in the Colts case, they're just yeah, blue. Guardian cap. And, and, yeah. and that is apparently for this reasoning. If the NFL is committed towards the safety at all times neurologically of players and that does appear to be providing extra benefit, why are they not wearing them in games? Yeah, it's a great question, and I will tell you that last year was the first year that we used them in practice situations. It was on a subset of players, and it was not primarily introduced to prevent concussion, which might sound a little strange to you, but the reason that it was introduced and the reason the the, the device was initially designed was to reduce any impact that happened to the helmet in, in any kind of manner. So inadvertent contact or play contact that involved 
contact to the helmet, you want it to reduce that force. It's just reducing force anytime the helmet is contacted. Our overall effort is to say, hey, let's not hit the head anyway. Uh, let's avoid head contact whenever possible. The, think of that padding as being there for any time there is inadvertent contact, like a player hitting the ground or inadvertent collision with a teammate. So last year we used it in a subset of players in practice. It was the first time it had been worn at the NFL level in that manner. There was experience, however, at the NCAA level with using it in practice. No one has experience really in game participation yet. And so we don't want to introduce anything into the game environment until we're sure, A, that it's going to be beneficial, and B, that it's not going to be harmful in any way. And so we're doing that work now and trying to do that due diligence um, to look at those issues. But I think the, the bigger message is how can we design a better helmet that incorporates the, the, the principles of the padding and the, and the benefits um, in, into a better helmet that can be used in all situations, games and practices. So we're doing that work. I think there'll be a lot more to say about that, but that's why we've tried to use it and introduce it incrementally is just based on the data that we do have and the experience that we have and making certain that we don't put anything into play that, that could be harmful in any way due to some unanticipated consequence. And then the other side of that, the, the second half of my last point here is, or question, with the NFL Players Association now seemingly requesting that fields go to natural grass i think that probably is more like a tendon type prevention of injury but getting away from the field turf and those kinds of things does that in any way shape or form is there evidence to say that a natural surface is a safer impact neurologically speaking than an artificial one yeah, that is something that we've looked at, and, and we continue to look at um, surfaces against all injuries. We haven't really found substantial differences in terms of concussion rates or concussion incidents. Uh, but again, an area that we're very, very actively studying, and, and it is important. You, you raise a great point. If you're talking about safety on a surface, you can't just look at one injury. You can't just look at ankle sprains or knee injuries. You've got to think about all injuries, including concussion, shoulder whatever it might be. And so um, really complicated topic. Gosh, it would take us an hour to talk through that one. But I would just say a lot of work going on together collectively, as you mentioned, between the league and the Players Association and our engineers and our experts to look at those issues. How often when you're driving to work at Vanderbilt in Nashville, do you get hung up in traffic by seven bachelorette parties on the back of school buses? <laughs> Does that happen a often? A lot more than I used to. A whole lot more than I used to ten years ago. We, you ain't we kidding, are definitely man. the bachelorette party capital of the world. <laughs> you ain't kidding. It is. Uh, hey, it's Nash Vegas for a reason. They got that <laughs> moniker right. Hey, doctor, I That's appreciate right. the time. Uh, fabulous insight, and I appreciate your patience with uh, my naivety on all of it. So, certainly appreciate the time today. And if the situation presents itself again, we'd love to have you back. Hey, Jake, uh, Jimmy, really appreciate it. Good luck to you guys and happy to be with you. I appreciate it so much. Dr. Alan Sills, who is the chief medical officer for the National Football League. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta. And check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Just had a great conversation with Dr. Alan Sills, Chief Medical Officer for the National Football League. Podcast will be up a little bit later. Just search Query and Company wherever you get your podcast. Of course, you can find it at 1075thefan.com. We continue our line of great guests. Rhett Lewis of the NFL Network, as well as a color analyst for the Indiana Hoosiers, taking some time with us here on Query and Company. Rhett, how are you on a Wednesday? 
What's up, fellas? Doing great. Excited to get back to Bloomington on uh, Friday morning and uh, get ready for another big game there at The Rock. Right. I don't know if you know this or not, but on this program, um, you know, that I've probably made some crazy statements over the years, but I, I am fully, <laughs> fully convinced of this. Are you ready? Okay, I think they even ran a show promo of this. Everybody's talking. Well, let's begin with this before we get to NFL talk. It's coming back that week, by the way. It's coming back. Eddie has it saved. It's going it's to okay. make a reappearance okay, good. that week. Um, we'll begin with this from a college standpoint, Rhett, and we'll begin on a serious note before yeah. we get to my prediction. Yeah. In the college football playoff this year, of the four teams that are going to be represented in the college football playoff, what is the total number of losses? Uh, good question. Um, I think I would say I would say three. Okay, I, I would say that Vegas would put the over under at three, right? Yep. And I think it. Don't laugh at me here before my wild prediction. I I think it could be as high as five. Like I could actually see three one loss teams. And then even a two, I don't know which one it would be, but I'm just saying this year it seems so topsy-turvy, especially with the portal and everything else, that yeah. you're just going to have, I think it's possible that a, I don't think it'd be Bama, but somebody of that ilk that has two losses, if they get enough wins on their resume, can find their way in. And I, I think it's possible there's yeah. not an undefeated team. So here's here's what my math on that. Um, I, I don't even know that Alabama's going to the playoffs, to be perfectly honest. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think, threw them as yeah. like the generic yeah, I, example. I, I think Georgia could very well go undefeated, right? I mean, they're not maybe as good as they were a year ago, but the SEC East is, you know, it, it doesn't hold a candle to the West, uh, in my opinion. So they get through there. If they, can, if they can go through an SEC championship game, they go in undefeated. I think Michigan could go in undefeated. Uh, and then I, I think you're going to see a team out of the Pac-12, and I'm I'm looking at Washington right now, man. I, you know we're going to see they got you know they got to get Oregon, they got to get USC, and, and all that. But I, that's a damn good team. Obviously, a quarterback we know very well uh, here in Indiana. So um, that that's an interesting one to me. But uh, you know whether you know the Big Ten can get two teams in, I think you know at that point you'd see you'd obviously see another loss. So here here's the curveball in all of it. Okay. Yeah. The curveball in all of it happens midway through October when, and I know where you're going to be, so I would just advise that when you're calling the game, as soon as the game's over, that you get into an open space or area when the earth shakes, because the college football world is going to be turned upside down, and the football playoff frenzy is going to start, and all hell breaks loose on October 14th when the fighting Indiana Hoosiers go in and stun 105,000 quiet, silenced people at Michigan Stadium. I'm telling you right now, Michigan's going to go in there. They're going to have their dockers. They're going to be all excited. They're, they're, they're looking at Ohio State. They're looking at game day, the whole nine yards. And, and, and Indiana is going to go in and stun the world. That is the college football's biggest upset of the year is going to be Indiana at Michigan. Dude, I love it. I absolutely love it. And uh, you're speaking my language here because I'm telling you right now, there are winnable games on this schedule left for Indiana to go bowl eligible and beyond this year. We got ourselves a quarterback, which is pretty damn exciting. Um, and there's a couple of things that we can get into it if you guys want to, but that really impressed me with, with a young quarterback, you know, that could be here for a, another few years with Taven Jackson. And he's going to be a big piece 
of this push for IU and, and his defense is much better than it was a year ago. There's a lot to like about what, what's going on here despite the one and two record. But the other side of that, Rhett, let's be real, is because it's a young quarterback and I do think he's talented, don't get me wrong, but yeah. they also there also is the potential for getting out of the box slowly in conference play and the roof caving oh, in, sure. right? Yes. Look, every game that you look at on the schedule is winnable. The, the other team does too. You know, like they, they see Indiana on the schedule, like, okay, well, you know, that's one of those ones we got to have, you know, and, and, you know, we certainly see it the same way uh, as you as you look down the conference slate, um, you know, on IU schedule. But I think you're right. I think there's some growing pace. I think we saw, like, that. that's what's almost more encouraging to me about Tatum's performance against Louisville is I think there was 14 to, you know, 20 points left out on the field with some big plays that didn't go – uh, I use way. I mean, you know, James Bond was running scot free down the middle of the field on the on, in the first quarter on that first drive on an offsides call, and got to, you know, Tavian just didn't see it. Um, you know, it's a surefire touchdown. There's a couple other ones in there, so I think he's going to continue to get better now that he's getting all those reps as the one quarterback. We're going to see some development. Rhett Lewis of NFL Network joins us. Rhett, looking big picture NFL, Jake and I talked about this before the season started, and this is common knowledge for football fans, but it feels like every year there's teams that make the jump for the playoffs after being a non-playoff team the year before, and every year there's teams that were playoff teams that are viewed as untouchable that take a step back. I want to stick with the latter for the purposes of this conversation. I know it's not overreaction Monday anymore, but... Are, are the Bengals that team, or is there a chance they're going to be that team this year? Oh man, I, you know what? I went back and I watched uh, Joe Burrow, um, Joe Burrow's performance this last week with a critical eye, and I, I came away, you know, thinking like, "Dang, yeah, this is this is a dude that we know and love as a quarterback." And um, I, I think right now they they've got some issues defensively. Like they got to find a way to get off the field, get the ball back into Burrow. I and mean, look, I, I think this all comes down to whether Burrow is going to be healthy enough to where we're not wondering, you know, how is it going to hinder his performance week in and week out. If we can get past that point, I think the Bengals find themselves back into the postseason. I don't care if it's as a wild card because they can beat anybody uh, if if that offense is truly rolling. They haven't even gotten Jamar Chase going yet. Like that's going to happen. Um, so I, I'm not ready to throw, you know, to jump off the, the Bengals bandwagon just yet. You ever seen Rhett? Um, I think it was a, a DiCaprio movie. Uh, what was the one, Jimmy, what was the DiCaprio movie where he's um, Inception? Is that what it's called? Where it's like about his dreams? Dream and, within a dream within yeah. a dream. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Have yes. you ever seen that, Rhett? You know, I, people talk about that all the time. Um, like it's like a you know a riddle wrapped up in an enigma. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it's it's one yeah one of those mental thrillers or whatever. Well, I, it was I, awful. Did you? So yeah. you haven't you haven't seen it, right? <laughs> I, I enjoyed it. So you understood it, Jimmy? I, I, mean, I think so. Yeah. Okay. Did. So if they, if they said they did. They're lying to you. All right, I'm lying ex- to you. I guess, bingo. Jake, that's exactly bad. right. Right. Pulp Fiction, same way. Everybody walks out of Pulp Fiction, yeah. coolest movie ever, and then they had to watch it six more times before they understood. Right. It. Uh, what NFL team this year is that movie? What NFL team is the one that you watch it three times and you're like, I don't know that I have any more answer on what they're all about than I did when I started? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I think, you know, this early in the season, you could probably give off a a number of answers. I think right now the one that fits to me the most is the New York Giants. Like, are are they the team we saw for six quarters that couldn't get out of their own way, couldn't score, couldn't stop anybody? You know, they had trouble dealing with, you know, one of the best teams in the league in the Cowboys and one of the worst teams, if not the worst team in the league in the Arizona Cardinals. 
And then they come out in the second half, and it's like, holy smokes, there's the dude we're paying $45 million a year, Daniel Jones. And, and I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's why I was optimistic about this team to begin with. Now, but what happened before? Is that just you know, a little bit of a feeling out process on the season? Did we find something you know, in the second half? So like, that's a team where I am, I'm just not sure yet. I'm not sure what to expect week to week. I'm certainly not sure what to expect tomorrow against, you know, one of the best teams in the NFC, if not the league, in the San Francisco 49ers. How much difference is there for quarterbacks today, Rhett? Rhett Lewis is our guest, by the way, on the hotline from NFL Network and, of course, the IU Football Radio Network. I I feel like 30 years ago when a quarterback – you know, Rick Meyer will take, right? Rick Meyer, Drew Bledsoe. When they came into the league, there was – it was a bigger – almost I'll use the word crapshoot of how good quarterbacks were going to be because there was such a difference schematically for a quarterback between college and the NFL. But it seems like now NFLs are running more of a hybrid college style offense. Is the learning curve shorter for an Anthony Richardson, for a CJ Stroud than it would have been if they entered the league 15 years ago? Oh, you know, it's, I struggle with that question a lot because like we see, we've seen both sides of the coin, right? You see like the best quarterback in the league today didn't play. He didn't hardly play his first year, right? And Patrick Mahomes. Um, And then, you know, you see, you see the opposite. There's plenty of cases where guys have come in and done really well their first year. I think it comes down to three things, uh, guys. I think it comes down to uh, play caller, right? And, and that is, you know, you look at Brock Purdy, he's got, arguably the best play play caller in football and Kyle Shanahan. He's able to come in as a, as a guy, you know, as a un, Mr. Irrelevant and absolutely run that offense p- to perfection. Okay. And then the next thing is playmakers. Well, that's another thing Brock Purdy had. Debo Samuel, Brandon IU, Christian McCaffrey, George Kittle, uh, list goes on there. Uh, so playmaker, play caller. And then, you know, like you got to be able to make some plays on your own, uh, you know, and you've got to be a little bit of a playmaker and, he, and you know, like, Again, just using the Purdy example, he's got that. He's got that ability to whatever it is, find buy some time for himself, find a way to make a play, whether it's using his legs or, or, or using his arm. So, like those things are important. Like, but that's institutional for the most part. Play caller, playmaker. Do you have those things? If you do, you're likely to find some immediate success. And then the next thing is look at what we've seen in today's league, like in the last year or two, or, or even just to, yeah, take the last year or two experience for a quarterback. Brock Purdy started like 45 games at Iowa state. Dorian Thompson Robinson started like a hundred games at uh, UCLA and, you know, won the number two quarterback job in Cleveland as an undrafted free agent or as a six round pick, whatever it was. Um, I think you're seeing more and more cases of guys that have played better and played more in college football be more ready to play and be better once they get to the league. Look at like the Mitch Trubisky example. Um, you know, started what twelve games before he was taken the top of the draft by the Bears a few years ago. It didn't work out for him. You know, and you're hoping that Anthony Richardson in Indianapolis is the opposite, right? You know, started thirteen games at Florida. And you're, you know, you're hoping that his athleticism and his ability, you know, to be a dynamic playmaker both on the ground and in the air, that you know, gives you an opportunity to find immediate success. So um, I think those are kind of some interesting trends to follow. Life is full of things to manage: your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different. 
Ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. So with that, and I think so much of the quarterbacking position in the National Football League, Rhett, can yeah. be like mental, right? Just it's, oh, sure. And does Justin is Justin Fields' current? Yeah. I'm not going to say slump, but like his his being on the treadmill right now or stuck in quicksand. Is Justin Fields stuck in quicksand because it's mental for him, or because the physical schemes of the game just continue to elude him? So that that's an this is an interesting case to like challenge you know what I was talking about here or to validate it right because you know you had I don't know if you guys saw the quotes from Fields just a little while ago right it said you know I've been too robotic and you know just based on the tweets that I was reading of, of guys that were in that press conference you know said that he was then you know, the follow up to that uh, being too robotic you know the why question his answer was coaching you're like whoa. <laughs> Um, you know, you don't normally see that honest of an answer uh, from a, from a player if the coaching is a perceived issue. But I would say that 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 is something you've got to follow, right? Is the play caller there? Uh, is the play caller there somebody who can put Justin Fields in the best possible situations and scenarios to find success, utilizing his skill set? They still don't have the playmakers. I mean, even DJ Moore, you know, last week with the 100-yard game was nice, and, and they need more of that. But they, they're still not there with playmakers yet. So have we truly done enough to support Justin Fields at an institutional level from GM and coaches finding the right people to put in his camp and then the, surrounding him with the right amount of talent to, whether, to know whether you can get a true evaluation I think we, we were talking about that we were selling Daniel Jones down the road uh, in New York a couple, just a, you know, a year ago, and then he comes out and has a career year with one of the better offensive coaches in football and Brian Dable. So I, I, that's a tough one, right? You know what, what might be the highlight of the year for Justin Fields, Uh-oh. quite frankly, is when he sees that his arch rival Michigan gets stunned on October 14th when <laughs> yeah. Indiana comes rolling into the big house. Let's go. Yeah. Oh, he's he's going to be fired down. up about that. Yeah, no doubt. He's going to feel really good. I don't know who they're playing that week, but it might not matter. <laughs> Rhett Lewis with us, host on NFL Network. You also know him as well as a color analyst for IU Football Radio. Rhett, as a former wide receiver, the argument I've made this week, because there's so many questions around the Colts wide receiver room and decisions they're going to have yeah. to make this offseason and a pushback to that last couple years is, well, look who's been throwing them the ball. How valuable yeah. is having a backup like Gardner Minshew available for as long as Richardson may or may not need to miss time for those wide yeah. receivers, knowing there's a level of competency for not only them from a growth standpoint, like Josh Down, like Alec Pierce is a second year wide out, but also for the Colts as they're still trying to evaluate what that wide receiver room is going to look like next year. Yeah, you know, I think that's a that's a good question. I mean, I love Gardner Minshew. Uh, I've, I've loved him. Got to spend some time around him um, before he got into the league. And I mean, he's just a he's a fun dude to be around. He loves football. He loves working at football. He'd be coaching if he wasn't playing. Uh, you know the whole story, right? Which got him to Washington State with Mike Leach, and then finds himself in the league. Um, you know, and I, you know he's had opportunities to start and win games, as we saw this past week, and come in and help you win a game too. So I think that was a huge get uh, for for Chris Ballard and company and Indy to bring in an experienced pro like that and Gardner. So I think he can definitely help uh, the development of of some young receivers. And let's be honest, like 
the Colts need more from a guy like Alec Pierce. Like he is capable of more. Like his his talent, his skill set is. He was one of my favorite players in the draft uh, a couple when, two years ago when he came out of Cincinnati. That dude, that dude can absolutely play in this league in a big way, and, and they need more out of him. I need more out of Michael Pittman. Um, I think that receiver group needs to continue to develop. I think they've got all the skills and the talent. Um, I, I'd still love to see you know another piece, another piece in there. You know, somebody maybe with a little bit more of the kind of stop-start shiftiness, uh, provide some of that quickness, that separation guy like you see you saw just this last week in tank bell uh for the houston texans we kind of love to see that for the colts i love the colts tight end room um you know kylan granson gets his first td moali cox jelani woods when he's healthy is, is a big time player um and then we saw will mallory uh right so like there's I, I think there's some targets there and i think you know you still gotta work on getting those guys you know up to up to their potential and, and i know they will but um I, I think there's obviously still a need for some more pieces, but there's some growth that needs to happen there too. Indiana and Akron taking to the field 7.30 Saturday night. You can hear yes. that that game over on our sister station, WIBC. Rhett and Don Fisher on the call. Rhett, appreciate the insight. Look forward to having you back on, but appreciate the time yeah. today. Enjoy the game Saturday night. Yeah, definitely, guys. Appreciate it. Anytime. That's, uh, again, Rhett Lewis. Life is full of things to manage. Your work, your family, your plans, and your treatment. Consider Kesimpta, Ofatumumab 20 milligram injection. You can take it yourself from the comfort of home. If you're ready for something different, ask your healthcare provider about Kesimpta and check out the details at kesimpta.com. Brought to you by Novartis Pharmaceuticals Corporation. Joining us now on the hotline, he is with the Indianapolis Star, covering the Indianapolis Colts. Joel A. Erickson joins us, noted Milwaukee Brewer fan. Um, Joel, first off, Brewers, yay, nay, uh, deep playoff run. Um, I, I mean, the smart thing to do is say nay. Like, the, I like the pitching, but the, the the lineup could go dead at any time, and that that usually means a short playoff say. That's true for any team, though, I guess, right? I mean, pitching is what's going to win it for you in, in the postseason for the most part. Um, but – you know, we'll see. I, I predicted a while ago, though. Clearly, they're the most consistent team uh, in the division. But in Milwaukee, be a hell of a fun place to go up and watch a playoff game. But let's get back to the Colts themselves. Um, we will begin with, as we had mentioned earlier, and you tell me if there's anything further to elaborate on this. But as of now, both Anthony Richardson and Ryan Kelly still in the concussion protocol and not expected to practice today. Do you believe that that in any way, shape, or form means definitively that neither will play on Sunday, or do you think either one of them still works their way back? Um, it, it doesn't mean that they can't. Uh, without, I mean, the, the concussion protocol is so... Like, concussions are so finicky that there's no way to predict whether or not they're going to. But, like, it doesn't mean that they can't, that they're not practicing today. Because the, the two day, there's, there's two days of practice, and the, the last step, the fifth step, the one that's full contact practice, there is something within the NFL protocol that for players to do if it's a Saturday, and that's the last step, uh, to clear it, even if their team is not going through a full practice. So... No, it doesn't. Definitively, it doesn't mean anything. It just means they're not out there today. Joel, is this part of the reason? I know there's many reasons why, but part of the reason why it's a luxury to have somebody like Gardner Minshew 
as the backup quarterback. I mean, one angle we've been talking about all week, and we talked about it earlier today, in fact, is the good continuity that's already established there and his ability as a quarterback for a wide receiver room that is needed. Competency is at, at that position. No one's banking on Anthony Richardson getting hurt, but this is one of the luxuries of having Minshew, no? Well, I think the biggest thing is just he can seamlessly jump in to Shane Steichen's offense, I think, without you know much in the way of practice reps since the middle of training camp. And, you know, kind of just know where he's supposed to go, know where the ball's supposed to go. Uh, I think the other thing is that Steichen knows him. Uh, or he already knows, you know, what Minshew can do and what he can't do. He didn't have to learn him in the offseason. I think that probably helps, too, in terms of, you know, th- there's obviously some limitations on Minshew's play. And if you're working with somebody you don't necessarily know all that well, it's harder to, to game plan around those. He, he knows Minshew inside and out after being with him for a couple years in Philly. Joel, give me an area for the Colts so far, albeit only two games, that has pleasantly surprised you. Uh, the the defensive line, the defensive line has has been they, they've got the eight sacks, but they've also got seventeen. The, the Colts have seventeen tackles for loss, and they've been they've been pretty darn dominant in the run game. I mean, you you expect that with Grover Stewart and uh, DeForest Buckner, obviously, but they've gotten really good play from Quiddy Pay. Uh, and from Samson Abukum, like they they they've been very dominant up front. They they currently lead the NFL in average yards per carry allowed in the running game. The the passing game stuff, I think they've been good in the pass rush. This is a the, the one thing to remember is that this this first four game stretch, they have to play Trevor Lawrence, uh, Lamar Jackson, and Matthew Stafford, and those three quarterbacks are among the seven fastest in terms of like the time it takes them to throw the ball after it's been snapped to them. So I think the sack numbers are going to end up looking a little, might, at the end of this, might look a little weaker than the pass rush actually is because these guys just get the ball out really fast. Stafford wasn't sacked at all by San Francisco of all teams last week. Joel, from that stat and you watching two games into the season, does that feel like a stylistic point of emphasis from the coaching staff for Richardson to get the ball out quick? Or do you think this is a large part of not what they want to do in the short term as he adjusts to the NFL, the long term they want him to be, as the league says, you know, get rid of the ball as quick as you can and, and make good decisions in a quick and timely fashion. Is that what his style you think is going to be throughout his career? Is an emphasis on getting the ball out quick, or is that a short-term, hey, this is the way we want you to go through progressions at this stage of your career? I, I think that Steichen is going to want him to get the ball out uh, quick for the most part. You know, I think he's going to want to be out and on time. I asked him it directly today, and I think by now you guys probably know what we've learned, that Shane Steichen doesn't want to tell us anything uh, that another team could in, could in theory in any way use against them from a game-planning stand, standpoint. But I do think this is the way he wants him to play. It's, it's, it's somewhat uh, remarkable just – sort of given Richardson's reputation that he's 10th fastest so far because, number one, he's a rookie. Uh, Stroud and Young are both among the slowest in getting the ball out of their hands. Number two, he's known as a runner. Outside of Jackson, just about every other quarterback who's known as a, as a runner is among the slowest. And then I think, I, I don't know, this, this probably isn't uh, this probably wasn't deserved necessarily, but he sort of had a reputation as like going to be a guy who runs around and just kind of wings it. And those guys are also at the bottom. Of, like Mahomes is is one of the slower guys in terms of getting it out because he's too busy, you know, running around and creating something ridiculous. 
like he doesn't it, all those things are things that have been said about Richardson in one way or the other or in the case of the youth thing is that just true um, so it is a little bit remarkable that two games I mean I know he's abbreviated game but however many passing attempts in that he's he's in the top 10 in terms of getting his hands out I think I think that they, they definitely want to push the ball down the field more and there might be some concepts that go longer but I, I think Steichen wants to get the ball out of his hands do you think that Joel, that Zach Moss, in the way that he played, or the 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 just kind of the effort with which he runs, in any way, shape, or form, affects or influences the way the Colts handle the situation with Twiggy, which is Jonathan Taylor. We're just not saying his name. <laughs> I I hadn't thought about that, and then I remembered it when he said it. Um, I I don't think so. Um, I, I I still think ultimately it'll just come down to, uh, you know, to them deciding whether or not they they feel like they can get something back that they consider commensurate value for him. Um, but Moss Moss is like he played well on Sunday. He doesn't give a lot, he doesn't give you a lot of extra as a running back, and so I think that that's probably. Um, I don't think it necessarily would affect it. I mean, I think you can have an effective run game with him, but they also had to play him every single snap, which is very straight. That doesn't happen in the NFL, um, and it's not really sustainable over the long term. So, uh, getting another running back in would, would, that they feel like they could play would certainly help. Does the Kareem Hunt signing with Cleveland or the reported signing with Cleveland put to bed though the idea that there's going to be a a legitimate solution? in the free agent market to this point. I mean, I know there's been rumors that the Rams might make Cam Akers available. I, I don't know. I don't really have an interest in trading anything of significance for him, even though he's only 24 years old. But does that put to bed real options that the Colts would have if they decide to bring in another body? I I would say that even before the signing, there weren't great options out there. Um, if, if they end up bringing somebody in to pair with Moss in, in, a, in a hypothetical world where uh, the other running back is traded. Um, they, uh, it's not going to be somebody who's going to be a, a huge difference maker. It's just, it's just unlikely. I mean, even Kareem Hunt, who I think the deal I saw was one year for up to four million, which I, I'm guessing means it's incentive laden, is coming off of his worst year in the NFL uh, with Cleveland last year. He didn't, he didn't really have anything left. Uh, it seemed like, and and I mean, Cleveland went out and didn't re-sign him after that. Him and Chubb being together for a long time, so I think that sort of tells you, you know, what the NFL thought uh, in terms of in terms of what they were going to get from him. So it, it's been a while since there was like an obvious option. Um, now it, you know it, it's it's running back, so you you get little bursts of of stuff a bit of really good play from guys you never hear of again uh you know so that there there could be somebody out there that we're not thinking of maybe maybe trey sermon who's on the practice squad now catches fire in his third chance um but it i don't i don't think that there's really been like a, a difference maker type on the market um really really through training camp do you think, Joel, are there any areas from a health standpoint for the Colts that are of concern, aside from Kelly and Richardson, anything else that we're overlooking because of the focus that we're putting on Kelly and Richardson? 
I don't think it doesn't seem like Quentin Nelson's toe is going to keep him out, but I mean he's not practicing today. Didn't practice today, right? Yep. Today. He's he's not practicing today. Um, like I I don't we don't know what it is. Like, is it something that can get worse? I, I don't know. You know what I mean? Like, because um, guys play through stuff all the time. Quentin's played through stuff. I you know I think you know Garrett Forrest Buckner. Every year he's been here, has played through something like serious things that other players would, would be sidelined for. So I, I wouldn't count Clinton Nelson out, but I, you know, just not knowing exactly what's going on with his toe, and if it's something that could get worse, that that might be something that would fall into that category from an injury standpoint. Joel, what do you see when you look ahead? to Baltimore and the way that the Colts will be challenged on, on both sides of the ball. I know the last couple of weeks, the Ravens obviously out to a 2-0 start and a really complete game it felt like against Cincinnati a week ago. How will the Colts be tested regardless of who it is that's out there? Well, I think this is an interesting test for the offensive line in the passing game. And I think that the Colts – I've really thought that the Colts' offensive line has been pretty good in the passing game so far. I mean, I know they gave up four sacks against Jacksonville, but two of those sacks were the sort of line of scrimmage, run out of bounds, quarterback version, and it's not really a sack. Um, like, zero-yard sack is kind of a weird thing to me. Um, so they, they've been pretty good so far, but Baltimore is going to be the first defense that's, that is going to be aggressive and play a different style than that sort of sit back and let things happen style like they and rush for but Baltimore gets after people and it's going to be interesting to see if, if Kelly can't play um I, I think that complicates things because obviously like the center is, is some, one of the first people who makes most of the line calls along with the quarterback I think you feel comfortable with Minshew doing it but Wesley French uh who came in for Kelly the other day it, it'd be his first start in the NFL I, I think that's going to be interesting um to see if uh, if how they handle a different kind of attack that's maybe not not playing back so much and and maybe more willing to come after the quarterback. Joel A. Erickson is our guest from the Indianapolis Star. Uh, Joel, in terms of Baltimore, I don't know how much you've gotten into the Ravens themselves, but if you are the Ravens, for example, areas for the Colts that you feel are the greatest to exploit because it is the Achilles heel so far of what they've been able to show? Uh, the secondary. They, they, like, the Colts' run defense has been so good. Like the, the, I think the defensive line, the linebackers have been good. But there have been plays to be made in the Colts' secondary. Uh, we saw it with C.J. Stroud. Um, we saw it with Calvin Ridley the week before. Um, and I, I, you know, you don't think of the Ravens as a passing team, but I think if you're if you're the if you're Baltimore's offensive coordinator Todd Munkin, and you're looking at the way the Colts have played so far, and how good they are up front in the running game, I I would be think, I would maybe be just tell Lamar, hey, we're going to come out throwing it, and and try to get the ball out of your hands quick, so you don't necessarily have to run away from the pass rush because, you know, Daryl Baker Jr., Dallas Flowers. Um, that second, that young secondary has looked young and inexperienced at times, and that, that's what I would go. That's what I would do. Joel Juju Brents, um, you know, I've seen some. I mean, it's obviously so early in the, in the kid's career, right? And you know, we know he came in, um, got a little behind the eight ball in camp due to injury, etc. Um, 
Where do things stand with him? And it's kind of a weird question to ask, I guess, because in totality, this is like just a, a, a grain of sand in his career. But it is an important position to get footing underneath you and start to get rhythm. Uh, where do things stand for the kid from Indy? They, they, I, so I brought this up to defensive backs coach Ron Milas last week. And Ron was adamant. Like He told me like, three or four times. There's nothing else going on here. It's just about time. Like, essentially, like, don't be looking for anything extra. Um, and that's not necessarily, like, I think that's the first conversation I've ever had with him like that. But it was like, he was just like, he just wasn't, on, he was only on the field really for two weeks between the time he was drafted and the time they cut down to, to 53. Uh, they, they, Gus Bradley said yesterday that, um, they, they thought he got, he got a lot of reps in practice last week, and they're, they're starting to get in there. But, again, like I, just going off of, of, of Ron Miles, the defensive backs coach, they just felt like he just didn't have enough time. And I would say that, you know, with some of the struggle they're having at cornerback, as soon as he has enough time, I'll, I'll be looking for him to get out there just because they, they kind of need to try some things uh, at the cornerback position. And he's, he's the most obvious because he's, he's the one that – has been inactive, you know. Jalen Jones has been active, and they didn't they didn't put him in. Um, Brents is kind of the most obvious solution if they feel like he's ready to play. Joel Erickson joins us, Colts beat writer for the Indy Star. Joel, you mentioned how Shane Steichen likes to keep things close to the chest, and I figured out the perfect analogy for him. He is the high school coach that refuses to put stats on max preps because he thinks it's going to give a competitive <laughs> edge to opposing teams. So I've I figured that out on the fly. But I, that, that, that's a lead up to ask you. Everybody's going to want to know about Anthony Richardson's status and where he is in the concussion protocol. What would you wager the chance that that is found out at some point during availability with Steichen versus it comes out on a a national report or just from Colts.com or something like that, that, hey, there's no Anthony Richardson this week or, hey, he's not cleared the protocol? I, 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 would, put the, I would say if I was putting my card on who's going to announce it to be the NFL's injury report, you know, the, the – they have to do stuff at, like they have to declare designations at the end of the week, and then on Saturday they can change those designations. That would be my guess because concussion protocol stuff um, typically it just kind of goes through those channels. It's the, the independent neurologist is a, is part of that, and the symptoms are that way. I I would bet that you're not going to hear anything from Steichen from the podium, and actually I would say that. In the case of this injury specifically, he probably shouldn't say anything more than what he said before because, right. like, I've covered players who got to a certain step in the process and we saw them on the practice field and they had, like, they had an adverse reaction and had to go back. Like, that has happened. I've seen it happen in the concussion protocol. It's not as linear as it, like, it, it looks like, you know, you just hit all these five steps and there's no, there's no chance of going backwards, but that's not how it works. Like if you get to a non-contact practice and you have symptoms again, they push you back. So like, I would say that with a concussion, he probably shouldn't say anything because like you just, you can't put pressure on a player or a neurologist or anything like that with something like this, that like, the symptoms just don't always react the same way with, with, you know, different players. Joel, what's the name of your high school? Stanley Boyd. Stanley Boyd. And and who exactly was Stanley? 
that's a great question. I think it was a company. I think there's a manufacturing company. That's that's Stanley is the town I'm from. I have no idea who Boyd is. That's the little town that partnered. Oh, with Stanley us. Stanley is the name of the town. Yeah. Okay, yeah. so it's Boyd High School of Stanley, Wisconsin. No, it's 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 Stanley. I'm Boyd sorry. High, it's Stanley Stanley Boyd High School of Stanley, Wisconsin, and Boyd, Wisconsin. The Orioles. Ah, uh, I see. The so Orioles. it's so it's two different. They're the. How'd you know that? Because I went to Max Preps to find out if they put their stats, and they don't. Okay, so I'm looking for, is your school small enough that it does not have a Wikipedia page? Probably. Because, I, I mean, I, I think the only thing that would have, like, trying to think of, like, what would have earned Stanley Boyd a Wikipedia page, it would be like, like they've won a couple of football state championships. That's pretty much it. Well, I'd There's like to know, here's of, why I ask. I'd like to know the most famous... Like the notable, okay, here we go. Notable people of Stanley, Wisconsin. Who's the most notable person listed from Stanley, Wisconsin, not named Joel A. Erickson? I, I'm going to be honest. I don't know. Okay, here we go. We got uh, Dave Cahill, played for the Eagles, Rams, and Falcons. We got Larry Krause that played for the Packers. Oh, um, Larry Krause. Yeah, I should have known that one. Okay, and yeah. then you said there's a Boyd, Wisconsin also? Yes. Have you had this conversation with James Boyd? I have not. <laughs> I have not had this conversation with James Boyd. That's a good point, though. I probably should. Uh, okay. I'm looking to see who the notable people are from Boyd, Wisconsin. Which is bigger, Stanley or Boyd? Stanley. Okay. Well, then, Stanley. then Boyd's got – and you, your mailing address was which one? Stanley. Okay. Stanley, uh, I'm from a I'm from a farm that's like a, a a mile outside of the town of Stanley. There's not a single notable person from Boyd, <laughs> and it's only 552 people. What kind yeah, of lame ass cool. high school includes the name of a town with 552 people? Stanley wasn't strong enough to stand on its own. I, I guess not. I guess not. It's it's been Stanley Boyd too, like as long as I can remember. I think I think when my dad played there in the 80s, it was Stanley Boyd. Wow. Okay, the Stanley Boyd Area School District. Yeah, that's Stan the Stan- Stanley School District, and then the bus swings by and picks up three kids from Boyd, and they just merge the whole thing. Good lord. Uh, that's, that's not. That's really not far off. How far honest. is that from that's, Plainfield, Wisconsin? Uh, oh boy. It's it's a ways. Well, let me tell you something. Plainfield, Wisconsin, is the hometown of Ed Gein, who was the. Uh, influence essentially the the real life version of Hannibal Lecter from Silence of the Lambs, and I just decided one time when I was in Wisconsin to drive to Plainfield, Wisconsin, to go see the farm where Ed Gein did his thing. And let's just say the locals aren't exactly welcoming to that. <laughs> yeah, we don't. Well, I mean, it, you'll be shocked to know this, but uh, like we don't love in Wisconsin that we've because the, the the what was the murder thing, the podcast or whatever. That well, you got so making a murder, and you got Jeffrey Dahmer. I mean, you guys kind of have the holy trifecta up there, right? Yeah, yeah. We we don't love playing that up. That's not our favorite thing to play up. You know this, by the I way, feel, and then I'll leave I you with this, about, Joel. I'm not saying that Wisconsin. About an hour and forty five minutes. Hour and forty five minutes. Okay, I'm not saying that Wisconsin is demented. This is a true story, and I'm demented for even <laughs> having looked this up. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Did you watch the the Dahmer documentary on Wiki, on uh, Netflix? I did not. Okay. No. Either you guys watch it. No. You know who Jeffrey Dahmer is, though, right? Yes. Eddie knows who it is. Yeah. So Jeffrey Dahmer worked at a chocolate factory in Milwaukee, right? The chocolate factory where Jeffrey Dahmer worked 
during the time that he became the, the a cannibalistic serial killer. I mean, horrific story. But the site of the chocolate factory, Jeffrey Dahmer eventually left the chocolate factory, and eventually the chocolate factory, not because of Jeffrey Dahmer, but it closed and moved to a suburban Milwaukee location. Must have gotten a better deal somewhere else. So they, they tore down the chocolate factory where Jeffrey Dahmer worked. That site, they rebuilt an arena, which is where the Bucks play today. They had a concert to open that arena when they first opened it on the site where Jeffrey, where the previous tenant was where Jeffrey Dahmer worked. Do you know what the double billing of the concert was? I kid you not. Joel, you want to guess on this? Your people are sick. Uh, Let me just tell you that. You want to guess? I, I can't. I can't. I have no idea. The Killers and the Violent Femmes. <laughs> that is a true story. Look it up. That's a true story. That's a true story. Look that up. You people in Wisconsin are demented. You see? And li listen to that demonic laughter. I'm telling you, it's a true story. Th this dude was going into this dude literally this guy was going to, to drag shows, picking up people and killing them and then they have a concert of the Killers and the Violent Femmes. Look it up. Now I'm telling you right now, people are listening to this and they're like, I thought this was a sports show. What is this guy talking about? 92.8% of the people that are listening to me are going to get on Wikipedia and trace this and go, "Holy cow, that dude's right." I I'm, I'm telling you. I'm doing it right now. I'm doing it right now. I'm telling you. <laughs> look it up and check back with us, Joel. I expect a tweet in five minutes confirming that I'm correct. You got it? Yep, I got you. Okay. I got you. There you go. We appreciate the time as always. Thanks, Joel. Yep.